Welcome, my name is Yeshi Milner, and this is Tunnels, a new podcast and audio journal of the ideas, stories, and people that have inspired me personally. You may know me as the founder and executive director of Data for Black Lives, a movement of scientists and activists working to make data a tool for social change instead of a weapon of political oppression. And people often ask me, Yeshi, what gave you the courage to start a movement at one of the most important, but also most difficult times in history? This is the space where I'll be sharing my journey. And it's also an invitation for you to journey with me. Truly, I pray that this podcast and space can provide encouragement, inspiration, hope, joy, so that you too can press forward in a time where we must recognize that we're the ones we've been waiting for. For more than half of my life, I've been a part of a movement of some kind. And for some reason, I have always found an affinity to those spaces that were not necessarily mainstream. As a child, I had a keen and deep understanding of the suffering of all beings and a desire to find a way to solve the suffering for them. I say beings because for me, it started with animals. I grew up vegan due to the Rastafarianism that my family practiced, which I promise I'll go into much more in depth in another post. I always felt different, but never really special for being vegan. Although I do have so much gratitude at my mom's choice to raise us this way. And even though I hated being different and bringing tofu sandwiches instead of burgers like other kids had at their school lunches, I understood the part of Rastafarianism that protected the rights of all sentient beings. When I first encountered the radical animal rights movement at 13, the images of industrial chicken farms and emaciated cows living in filth on dairy farms frightened me. But there was a call to action behind it that energized me. I didn't think I could shut down any of those factory farms, which due to a really cool map and search feature on PETA's site at that time, you could figure out exactly where they were. And I was one of the perhaps few middle schoolers who would go on that same site and order PETA pamphlets, PETA meaning people for the ethical treatment of animals, and pass them out in my school's cafeteria. But I believe that if I got one kid to stop eating meat, or most importantly, to think differently about it and where that meat came from, that I would be making a difference. As I got older, my connection between suffering and its root causes of injustice also grew. And I had so many experiences that further confirmed that connection and inspired me to take action. At that very same middle school, years before in sixth grade, I experienced my first suspension. And this wasn't for fighting or anything crazy and not for passing out any kind of pamphlets, but because I talked out a turn during a lesson on floppy disk in my computer class. This was a time of zero tolerance policies and exclusionary disciplinary approaches to discipline. So literally they had a room in my school that was set up like a prison. The walls covered with posters about morality and pride with words like wisdom and character, but sitting in the chairs hunched over, depressed, dejected, were middle schoolers. A symbol of the contradiction that was at work in a place like that. I don't regret getting suspended. I don't remember any of the shame that they tried to drill into us during those three days where we ate lunch at a different time than our classmates and had to go in line to the bathroom and without talking, very carceral. But what saddened me and depressed me the most was how behind I was in school. It felt like when I was in those in that classroom for three days, the world passed by. And it took a while for me to get caught up on my lesson. I never wanted to go back there. And eventually I would go on to be our middle school's valedictorian. 
which made me realize that it wasn't, again, badness, so to speak, that put me in that situation. But as a bright, curious, keen kid who was also Black, it was, as Michelle Alexander describes, the impulse to punish and criminalize that has become the central impulse of our society and of mass incarceration. By the time I was finished with high school and ready to go to college and start my future, the foreclosure crisis hit Miami in pandemic proportions. Within a couple years, the most profitable financial tools, credit default swaps, balloon mortgages, securitization, became weapons that totally destabilized and scattered Black communities, turning blocks and blocks and blocks of empty, pristine homes into ghost towns. Pray to the later real estate speculation that has put us in this position now where no one can afford the rent. My family was not immune to this either. And as I packed my bags and got ready to start my first year at Brown University, our housing back home was still in limbo. But before I got to leave to Brown, I got a chance to join an operation that was underground, very illegal, where at first, because I was too young, no one wanted me to even come to, but it was an important experience for me. Waking up early in the morning with this amazing group of people known as Take Back the Land, an organization in Miami that was reclaiming homes, foreclosed homes, perfectly fine, empty homes, reclaiming them and moving families in. I'll never forget being there that morning and being able to move in a family not unlike mine, a mother with her six children into a house that we had rigged and fixed up with generators. I wasn't even supposed to be there. And quite frankly, it probably wasn't safe. But that moment would live on with me forever. And that's a prime example of the ways in which these spaces in the underground that really found me were the missing link between the injustice I saw and the very, very, very clear root causes that were all around in policies and practices and cultures, reinforcing injustice and equality that was historical. In these underground spaces, I felt seen, heard. These were the most honest and experimental and powerful spaces I'd been a part of, laboratories for democracy and innovation, where people used pronouns and dared to challenge and rethink all aspects of society to accept nothing at face value 10, 15 years before the present moment. Our tunnels took the form of collectives and direct actions and rapid response formations. It was in the underground that I learned what it really meant to pull apart, chip away, and dismantle the conditions to make the kind of change that could actually reduce suffering in my lifetime. I learned to wheat paste screen printed posters and make zines and do banner drops from highways around the same time I learned to embrace data as a form of protest and a tool for social change. And in homage to the underground, I knew I couldn't start this podcast off without talking about this space. One that'll inform the rest of our episodes and conversations and guests and, and really continuing to build on that concept. Because truly, there's really no other example of the ways in which the idea and power of these spaces, which are, again, not just underground, but social, political, emotional, and spiritual, have changed the face of this country. And I can't talk about underground, especially today as I record, without talking about the Underground Railroad. And that's what I want to get into today. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking about why the Underground Railroad came to be, a bit about how it operated, but most importantly, about the people who did. 
Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, but even most importantly, less well-known people like William Still, who I'm convinced was our country's first data scientist. It was due to his record keeping and data collection that we're able to have such comprehensive records of what happened then. And most importantly, thousands of enslaved African people were able to find their families and be reconnected once slavery was emancipated. On this day, 157 years ago, the proclamation was given that in Texas, the very last state to uphold slavery, all slaves would be free. This was three years after the Emancipation Proclamation was issued, three years since the ratification of the Constitution with the 13th Amendment, which as we know, left a loophole for the last and most recent permutation of slavery, which is the for-profit prison industry. But at that moment in 1865, there were still 250,000 enslaved people in Texas, but they joined the jubilees that had happened all over the country over years as freedom was a process. All of these dates converged around Juneteenth, which due to the advocacy of so many folks, today is now widely celebrated as a federal holiday. So I hope that if you're listening to this today, you have the day off where you live and at your workplace. But what we celebrate on Juneteenth are not those who were in power and who used emancipation as a political tool, but we celebrate the enslaved Africans themselves, who well before those dates took their freedom, grabbed it, and didn't let it go. The heroes of today, back then, were the thieves, fugitives, and criminals. This episode is by no means meant to be a comprehensive study of the Underground Railroad. I encourage folks to get into the show notes and read the books that I recommend, and do some digging locally where you live as well and in your families if you are descendant of slaves. But I will be coming back to this theme of underground and, and of the examples and stories in future episodes. But I've committed myself to understanding and learning about the Underground Railroad as much as I can and its operation because I want to understand what it took to topple a system then and what it'll take now. From my understanding, the Underground Railroad was a hybrid movement, one with direct legal action, which was legal through policy change, advocacy, but the other was through direct action that was illegal, the operations necessary to transport people to slavery and keep them free. I learned that the Underground Railroad was loosely governed and truly decentralized, exactly what we are aiming for today as we develop blockchain technologies and as we strive to build the first decentralized autonomous organizations. To quote one historian, in practice, the underground was a model of democracy in action, operating in most areas with a minimum of central direction and a maximum of grassroots involvement, with only one strategic goal, to provide aid to any fugitive slave to ask for it. While the forwarding of fugitives was the central purpose of the underground, it also incorporated a broader infrastructure of iterant preachers, teamsters, and peddlers who carried messages for the underground into the South, slaves who themselves never fled, but provided key information regarding escape routes to those who did, sailors and ship stewards who concealed runaways on their vessels, lawyers who were willing to defend fugitives, 
and those who were accused of harboring them, businessmen who provided needed funds, as well as an even wider pool of family members, friends, and fellow parishioners who, although they might never engage personally in any illegal activity, protected those who did and made it possible for them to continue their work. The Underground Railroad was widespread, intricate, with routes that spanned the Eastern Seaboard and the country. But mainly, it was one anchored by networks of deeply committed and dedicated people. The Underground Railroad was a response to extreme oppression. People ask, why was the Underground Railroad needed? Oh, the response is automatically, oh, just because of slavery. But we have to really dig deeper, right? What was happening then was unimaginable violence orchestrated to fulfill economic demand and further expand America's influence in the world. For one, the Underground Railroad was a response to the emergence of a new and powerful technology. In 2019, I hosted a panel at the Harvard Kennedy School where we asked, how can we use data initiatives to empower communities of color, expose inequity, and hold governments accountable? To introduce the panelists and kick it off, I began talking about the cotton gin. Here's some of what I said. To quote, when it comes to big data, the pace at which our world is changing is dizzying. And we cannot predict what the future looks like, but we can look to the past to respond to the present. In 1793, Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin, a machine that separated seeds from cotton fiber faster than was previously possible. After the invention of the cotton gin, cotton became king in the U.S. By the 1850s, the United States produced 800 million pounds of cotton annually, the vast majority of cotton consumed nationwide. Worldwide, excuse me. Today, the cotton gin is touted as a game-changing social and economic invention. What is omitted from historical memory is the extraordinary positive impact the cotton gin had on maintaining and growing the transatlantic slave trade. For Black folks in the U.S., the cotton gin meant the expansion of a system so cruel and so violent that even today, over 150 years after the abolition of slavery, its legacy is felt, seen, and heard in Black communities across the country and even in institutions like this one. In that case, I was at Harvard, so I was referring to Harvard. But we must learn from the cotton gin that no technology is neutral because for too long, data has been weaponized against Black communities. But against this history, we have examples of the ways in which people are using technology as an instrument of positive change. But between 1790 and 1830, the demand for cotton created by the cotton gin grew the number of enslaved people by 200%. The second and most really important condition to create the response of the Underground Railroad was the existence of something that the historians call the reverse Underground Railroad, which at first confused me, but when you think about it, not only do these networks and systems represent and precede human trafficking networks of today, but this was what was depicted by famous movies like 12 Years a Slave. And I quote, in the August of 1825, Cornelius Sinclair, a 10-year-old free Black boy living in Philadelphia, was snatched off the street and put on a ship with four other kidnapped boys, ranging in age from about 8 to 14. The five boys were imprisoned for some time in a house along the Maryland-Delaware border, then made to walk on foot to the Deep South, where they became enslaved for labor purposes. This is a quote from the book 
stolen, five free boys kidnapped into slavery and in their astonishing Odyssey home by historian Dr. Richard Bell. Bell talks about the existence of secret, nefarious, dangerous, but perfectly legal kidnapping networks that span the country, but that really focused on places like Philadelphia and also New York City. Little documentation is found on the Reverse Underground Railroad. And those involved? Bribes, corruption, and apathy protected the operatives, with police turning a blind eye to their activities and white people showing indifference. To go to a New York example, as I mentioned, in The Kidnapping Club by historian Jonathan Wells, he describes the ways in which in 1833, Black children began to vanish from the streets of New York City. The Constitution's Fugitive Slave Clause, this is predating the Fugitive Slaves Act, required anyone to return anyone fleeing to bondage to their enslavers. Wells talks about the involvement of New York police officers, like the notorious Tobias Boudinot and Daniel D. Nash, central members of this kidnapping club, and use the mandate to they who use the mandate to target the black population of New York with the assistance of judges like city recorder Richard Riker, who would swiftly drop a certificate of removal. There were never any trials. There was never any recourse. But thankfully to the activism of David Ruggles, one of the forefathers of the Underground Railroad movement, he was able to bring these efforts to light, as much as even knocking on the door of people in Brooklyn who was told to have slaves still and liberating them. What these examples show is that whether you were enslaved or you were free living in so-called free states, to be black was a fragile and a precarious existence in this time. And that without the existence of things like the Underground Railroad to liberate people, sometimes again and again and again, people who had been stolen or people who had been born into slavery, we probably would have slavery, or at least this swarm of it, to this day. And today, authors like Colson Whitehead, which is, I love the book, I, one of my favorite books, sketches a vivid, vivid image of the operations of the Underground Railroad, which has now also become a TV series. But according to Fergus Bordewich in his book Bound for Canaan, The Underground Railroad and the War for the Soul of America, ultimately, the Underground Railroad was neither underground nor a railroad, but a multi-pronged attack on the system of chattel slavery carried out over a period of more than half a century. But let's stop there. The Underground Railroad was a full-on multi-pronged attack. It was an attack, a systematic counterstrike against a political, economic, and moral system that required immense boldness and courage on behalf of all participants. At that time, it took real courage to stand resolutely against slavery and condemn it, not just in words, but in actions. And to do so at a time when it was unprofitable, illegal, and very likely deadly to do so. Today, we measure the success of modern movements by the word impact. In terms of the impact of the Underground Railroad, modern estimates of the number of fugitives assisted by the Underground between 1830 and 1860 range from 70,000 to 100,000, of whom perhaps one third or one quarter were delivered to Canada. Side note. One of the things I learned in this study has been how most people who made it safely from the South ended up going to Canada. So in order to fulfill 
the promise of citizenship to be American citizens, they had to be go to Canada. Nowhere was safe. And I think that speaks to how ingrained slavery was to the very fabric of American society. The most famous of escaped slaves, Frederick Douglass, recognized the slave's quest for freedom, not in terms of a system, actually. But he wrote, it is enough an individual soul's willingness to risk death to escape the legalized immorality that America had imposed on nearly an eighth of its population. It was an outright refusal. And this is the real spirit of the Underground Railroad. Not buried, underground, but bold and unashamed, defiant and willing to fight. While the historical focus has been on the role of white abolitionists as the conductors and the orchestrators of the Underground Railroad, black abolitionists played a crucial, central, and singular and particular role. Slavery would never have ended if it was not for the full leadership of Black people at all levels. We would know nothing as close to what we know about the Underground Railroad if it was not for William Still, considered the father of the movement. He was a child of escaped slaves, his mother having to escape again after being recaptured and having to leave two older boys behind. William Still was, was the youngest, not born into slavery, the eighth child. He became a successful businessman, an abolitionist, and the secretary of the Vigilance Society, an important intake organization for folks who were fugitives and on the run. William Still was also one of our first data scientists. And this is an excerpt from one of his books, The Underground Railroad, published in 1872, where he makes an incredible discovery as he was interviewing someone who had just made it to freedom. On one summer day in 1850, as I was busily engaged in mailing the weekly issue of the Pennsylvania Freeman, two colored men entered the office. One of them was a resident of Philadelphia and well-known to me. The other I had never seen. My acquaintance introduced a stranger as coming from the South. And with the added remark, he will tell his own story. I paused and the stranger began in a very deliberate manner saying, I'm from Alabama. I have come in search of my people. I and my little brother were kidnapped about 40 years ago. And I thought by coming to Philadelphia and having notices written and read in the colored churches, old people would remember it and I could find my mother and I could find my people. After going on with his story for a few minutes in this way, I became fully satisfied that as if his history were as he had given it thus far, I could save valuable time by asking a few questions. I therefore asked, where were you kidnapped from? I don't know, he responded. Do you know the name of the place? No. Do you know the name of any town, river, neighborhood, or state? No, I don't. What was your name? Peter. What was your little brother's name? Levin. What was the names of your mother and father? Mother's name was Sydney, and father's name was Levin. Do you remember the name of any other person? I know the name of a white man. By this time, I was simply thunderstruck, so to speak. I had to summon all my powers of control in the presence of the stranger. So fully was I convinced by this time that he was one of my long lost brothers. I scarcely knew what to do for a little time, but by and by I dismissed the pilot saying that I would look further into the case after I got done with my mailing and would take care of the stranger overnight. This was satisfactory to the pilot, but hardly so the stranger till he was advised by his friend that it would be all right. William still goes on to talk about 
revealing to his brother, who at that point was 50 years old, that they were related, that he was their long lost brother and that they had the very same mother. And it was their mother who had escaped and could not take them and had left them with the grandmother, but that they were alive. The next day, he was taken to my mother's home in New Jersey and fully recognized by her. Not a shadow of a doubt appearing as to his identity, for he was her very image. Allow me to remark just here, William still writes. It was this heart-rending history connected with my own family that first prompted me to undertake to keep records of the Underground Railroad. Thousands of escapes, herring separations, dreadful longings, gropings after lost parents, brothers, sisters, and identities seems to be ever pressing on my mind. While I knew the danger of keeping strict records, and while I did not even dream that in my day slavery would be blotted out, or that time would come when I could ever publish these records, it used to afford me great satisfaction to take them down fresh from the lips of fugitives on the way to freedom and to preserve them as they had been given. But thank God, the end of slavery came ere we looked for it. And the records are no longer preserved in secret, nor is their presence a source of danger. William still never expected that the records would be seen by the light of day. He expected them to serve a strictly private nature. But what it did was change everything. At this time, record keeping of slaves at all were unheard of, much less their escape. In my Abolish Big Data talks, I talk about the history of record keeping at that time, which was used to maintain power and control and to reduce the humanity of enslaved black people to less than animals. A sentiment that was codified in the Electoral College with things like the Three-Fifths Compromise. But William still dared to collect data, qualitative and quantitative, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of detailed records. And it's what he did with the data that was important. He knew that having this kind of information in the wrong hands could have meant the return to slavery of 800 people and could have led to the death and arrest of thousands nationwide. He kept these records and protected them, cherished them, because he knew that without this data, people would remain disconnected from their families forever. And that this data was the information that was needed to continue the resolve to fight. Boldness, defiance, courage. That is how you can describe people like William Still. William Still went on to do so many things, including launching an organization called the Pennsylvania Civil, Social, and Statistical Association that was intent on collecting as much data as possible on freed men and women. And to do so at a time when even just the existence of a paper trail could have meant the loss of everything and the destruction of the amazing free black communities and the lives that people had built upon escaping slavery. And there's so many stories and the consensus around historians is that above any of the ways that people were able to construct the Underground Railroad, to be conductors beyond the whatever technologies and techniques and disguises that people had, what made them work was this boldness and defiance and courage. Scholars write about this, but the first person stories of those who actually did it are the most powerful. General Harriet Tubman was considered as one of the operators of the long distance tech tentacles of the ever expanding railroad, underground railroad traveling repeatedly into slave states to pluck away slaves from the belly of the beast. 
There was John Parker, the back foundry owner, Elijah Anderson, the Indiana ironmonger. There were the white men like Seth Conklin, Calvin Fairbank, the gun-toting John Fairfield who impersonated a slave trader. But there was no one like this incredibly single-minded, mystical, and diminutive woman, she was barely five feet tall, who defied every antebellum notion of what women were supposed to be. More than any other participant, her story would shape the legend and the myth of the Underground Railroad. She became a metaphor of the entire underground. With superhuman intelligence, uniquely brilliant work that evolved into a template for an entire diverse system. But she was liberated all her life and kept no records of her many expeditions into Maryland and no clear memory of their sequence or dates. But she is survived by the memories and impressions of others. Yes, people travel to freedom by trains, boats, cars, but mainly by faith. And it was faith that made it all possible. It was faith that took the most precarious and logistically impossible plans and made them a success. Harriet Tubman was known to have flutterings, as she would call them, that would help her identify when danger was near and could help her see the future. I wonder, in her flutterings, if she saw us today, 157 years later, celebrating the emancipation of slavery. But I know that when she became free, she knew that no one was truly free unless we were all free. And that is why she went back and did 19 more trips, bringing hundreds of people to freedom. To bring us back to today and to wrap up, yesterday, today's June 19th, 4.01 p.m. And yesterday, Saturday, June 18th, workers at the Apple Store in Towson, Maryland, voted 65 to 33 to become the first Apple Store ever to unionize. These were black workers in Maryland, which we have talked a lot about today, which clearly was and continues to be an important battleground for slavery in this age, for the slavery that is the result of the concentration of power and data and technology into the hands of a very few. These workers organized and persisted even after intimidation, harassment, and misinformation. They won. Apple sent in Deidre O'Brien, their senior vice president of retail, who I believe she's the vice president now. She'd been at Apple for 30 years. They sent her in to do the union busting work. She walked around the store taking pictures and intimidating workers just trying to do their job of making Apple the most profitable brick and mortars that we have today. Driving sales at $5,500 per square foot, as they like to tout. The union busters asked them, why would you want to join a union where black people weren't even allowed? Indicating that the union that they'd been working with was racist and totally erasing the fact that it was them, the black workers and the workers themselves who led this effort. No one came in and did this. Deidre O'Brien did a message for all of the workers in that store where she said, we don't want another company to get between us. Don't unionize. That sounds a lot like the kind of things they told slaves that were trying to escape. To close, I want to go back to the original story about me being suspended and in middle school and things that were happening in Miami when I left. And thank God I never went back to indoor suspension. I never again had to sit in that drab room, never missed out on classes again. But because I never went back, I did go back. And through my work later on to end the school to prison pipeline and to address the womb to prison pipeline 
and what folks in Minneapolis in 2019 called the cradle of prison algorithm. I've been going back and back and back as forth ever since through my work at Data for Black Lives, making as many trips as needed to free people from the brutal hands of slavery in its current technological form. Central to the Underground Railroad was this idea of returning. It was considered a railroad because it was a loop. And everybody, for the most part, who became free went back for others in some way. And today I ask you, will you go back with me? Will you go back with me to liberate and free those and bring them to where we're at now? Thank you so much for tuning in. God bless you and keep you. I look forward to talking to everyone again next week. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.